All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Exciting day. This is an exciting day. It might even be a nice day. I don't know. Paul Schrader is on the show today. Um, Paul Schrader, one of the greats, one of the true artists of uh, film and screenwriting. Just, uh, you know, it was, I was in, I was not nervous, but I didn't know how he would be. This guy's a, a fucking real intellectual and has written some of the greatest movies of all time and directed a few. He wrote Taxi Driver. He wrote The Last Temptation of Christ, Bringing Out the Dead. He wrote, he wrote and directed Hardcore, American Gigolo, Cat People, Affliction. His last three movies are kind of a informal trilogy. First Reformed, The Card Counter, and his latest uh, is Master Gardener. And I talked to him. And I think I got some stuff out of him, some good stories, some nice tidbits about Richard Pryor, George C. Scott, uh, some some of the movies we talked about, uh, some insight into his conception of Travis Bickle, how one of his movies did not end the way he wanted it to end. It's kind of a great talk. So I've had, it's been a pretty exciting few days, I guess. I find myself getting busy. I uh, did some big work, did some big work over the last few days. I don't know what you do with your free time, Here's what happened. It's cat related. Like I had one of those old pet safe fountains, uh, one of the original pet safe drinking fountains, right? It's uh, that that company makes a bunch of stuff. This is the original drink well from pet safe. Now I've, I've had a few of these over the years. Uh, Sammy, my uh, Sammy smushy. Uh, he likes it. He drinks out of it. And, I've had this one that I had for like many years and it was, you know, calcified. It had all the water deposits from hard water on it. And usually I can clean it out, but I, I cleaned it and it just wouldn't start up again. And, you know, it had, it was all kind of gunked up, but so I bought a new one. This is a, like maybe a $42 item, if not cheaper. So I got the new one. I rigged it up and, uh, you know, I turned it on and Sammy's drinking out of it. And the new one came with instructions. And I'd thrown the old one out. It's sort of like, I had a good run with it. It's got to be at least eight years on that thing. So I threw it out, you know, because I couldn't get the fucking pump started even after I brushed out the, tried to get as much as the gunk, uh, the, the hard water deposits out of it. So I just threw it out and got the new one and everything's good. And then I, I got the instruction manual with the fucking new one. And I'm looking at it, at the proper cleaning instructions for the pump and also for the body in general. And I'm like, well... Fuck it. I'll make a vinegar and water solution and I'm going to go get that one out of the garbage and make it like new. So I soaked the body of the fountain in a vinegar and water solution. Then I soaked the, uh, I opened up that goddamn pump, took out the pieces, soaked them, decalcified everything, put it back together. No more deposits on any of it. And it started working again. So I now have a refurbished drink well original fountain that I refurbished myself with a good chunk of time during my day. So if you're wondering, like, hey, if you got a free day and you wonder how to relax or do something, I do a little of that. Yesterday, I, I built a cat door. I've tried a lot of different cat doors to put in my window because I want bugs coming in. I don't, I'm not sure that 
my cats will even use a cat door. I've got to take the time to try and train them. But the two I had ordered from companies, one didn't fit the window properly. And the one I just got that's a cat door mounted in the middle of a flex, a plexiglass panel, I think is too small for them. So I got a cat door from Chewy that you're supposed to put in a door, used half of it, got a piece of plywood, mounted that half on the plywood. I got some foam for the sides and the top, insulating foam kind of uh, strips, uh, rubber. And I created, I built a cat door from scratch. And it looks like it fits. It looks like it's going to work. I just have to train them. So that's how, you know, you can spend a little time doing that, right? That's what's happening. That is what's happening. I also did a music show at Largo, which went on for two and a half hours. It got away from me, folks. I had uh, Jamie Lee and Ronnie Chang on the show. Me and the band did like six or seven songs. I, you know, rambled for a long time. Seemed to be pretty entertaining. But after the last, after I did my set, I said, who wants to hear one more song? And at least 30 people got up to split because I didn't realize it had been two and a half hours. And I think a lot of them just went to the bathroom, but felt a little bad about that. But those who hung in there, what a show. I said it was a, it was like a, it was like a mini music festival, but the same band just keeps coming back on. And, uh, and, and the, and the front man is not particularly confident. Listen, people hear me out. The bird situation, I'm having my house painted and there was a, there was a problem, right? There was a problem because the birds built a nest right above where you walk in and the whole front of the house is kind of speckled with uh, bird shit from the nest. And, you know, they got to, you know, get up there and do the patching and they got a power wash. And I told the guy, I, we can't do anything until the birds are gone. And the guy, Santiago, the painter, He's like, okay, no problem. We're going to work around it. And then last week, he's like, the birds are big. They'll be gone like in a couple of days. They just need to get more feathers. They need to eat a little more. And I'm like, okay, man, are you a bird guy? But they left. And I was fucking so worried about it. Just so worried about the vulnerability of those little birdies. But they're gone. So now that's a, that's a big stressor off my plate. The little birds. Still vegan, still doing it. Went to a place called McCharlie's here in LA. It's a vegan McDonald's. Looks like a McDonald's. Uh, and I gotta be honest with you, man. You can get these fake fun meals. They're all plant-based. And it was great. You know, the place is a little weird and I don't think it's a chain or anything. There's one, it's down on La Brea. And uh, it was great. Like if I ever get the urge to have that kind of garbage food, it definitely will fill the... Uh, Fill the void. Um, but it was a little weird. I was walking out, me and Kit, down La Brea. It's a huge synagogue down there. Um, and I believe there was a, an intercom on a car behind me. I hear it go, we will replace you. I'm pretty sure that's what it was said. And this pickup that had Hebrew writing all over it pulled up, you know, was driving next beside us and this black dude in the car points at me and he smiles and drives off. The joke was about the Jews. It was from my special. You know, I just want you to know we will replace you. But it was all sort of a, it was a, a sign. I don't know what it was, but the whole thing was a lot. Him yelling my joke over the intercom, all the Hebrew writing, and the fact that he's a black dude driving this uh, Hebrew security truck, I guess, for the neighborhood at the synagogue. It just... uh it was food for thought. It was a poetic moment. 
It should be a haiku somehow. We will replace you. We're working on it. It's all going to happen. All right, listen. I went on a little Paul Schrader film festival, not because of him coming, uh, just because it was, you know, over the last year, I watched uh, Blue Collar again. I watched Hardcore again. I I watch Raging Bull at least once a year. Um, I watched Light Sleeper. I watched, uh, I got to watch Affliction. Haven't watched Bring Out. I watched Autofocus again. Um, And I've seen First Reform, The Card Counter, and Master Gardener. These are all movies he was involved with, either written or directed. I watched Taxi Driver again. So this guy's one of the great dark minds, one of the great sort of deep uh, risk takers in cinema and a real intellect in cinema. And I was uh, honored to have this conversation with him. Master Gardener is the new film, which I talked about with Sigourney Weaver, but it hadn't opened. I guess it was just at festivals. And we talked about it pretty thoroughly. But it opens in theaters this Friday, May 19th. And this is uh, a conversation I had with, uh, with Paul Schrader. How's it being in L.A.? You all right? Yeah, I, I lived here for quite a while at one point. Yeah. Every time I come back, as soon as I get here, I say, oh, I'm so glad to be back in L.A. I love L.A. Yeah. And about two days later, <laughs> time to leave. <laughs> but I have to assume that, because when I talk to guys who were out here during the heyday of whatever the heyday was, the second to wave heyday... There's got to be a different game out here. Oh, yeah. No, no. I came out in 68. Yeah. You know, so that was the height of the counterculture. I right. Working for the L.A. Free Press. Yeah. Uh, going to UCLA. And uh, it was, uh, well, it's always been sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But sure. just a different kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, yeah, it seemed to be, uh, you know, culturally more proactive sex, drugs, and mm-hmm. rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, uh, that whole sense that uh, you could actually get something done, yeah, uh, which is gone now, uh, and it's gone in so many ways. It's hard to imagine, you know, uh, for someone my father's generation, hard to imagine a world where you don't think things will be better for your children than they were for you. So when you say get things done, that there was just there, there seemed to be more possibility. That, or opportunity uh, th- that the system would adjust yeah to change okay in a way that we now longer believe it can because i know because i was thinking about it, i did a little bit of research and this sort of idea because you were brought up very religious yeah and and obviously some of that i don't know if the word is sticks with you or haunts you or has evolved with you over time, but it's still there. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, com- the computer gets programmed fairly early. Yeah. You know, uh, Freud said about eight, seven, I think, maybe nine or ten. But anyway, the software is loaded in. And that's it. Yeah. And then all you can do is sort of uh, either uh, embrace it or push back. Yeah, just write, try to write some new code every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it, it doesn't, uh, sometimes it seems like it works and then it doesn't anymore. <laughs> but what kind of, what religion was it? Dutch Reformed. 
Yeah. So that was that's the roots of Calvinism, right? Yeah. I, always, I went to Calvin College. Yeah. Uh, so I had to study uh, eight hours of the institutes just to graduate. It was also a seminary. And Calvin was, and I'm afraid, sadly, it's yeah. less so. It was a great Christian liberal arts college. Great, yeah. Because Calvinism is very intellectual. Right. And everybody in the school is very intellectual. Yeah. But now that the— um, the enrollment is dropping. They are in all across the board in colleges. They are more and more dependent on money that is coming from the hard right. Uh, yeah, well, th that's a big problem. And just that, uh, that in, an, in essence, that the nature of education is shifting because they need students. So it becomes all about money yeah. and, not, and not necessarily about interest. It seems like your generation and maybe mine a little bit were really the last who had – real intellectual heroes, that there was a, a, a kind of liberal intellectual hero, a, you know, a, a well-rounded uh, liberal arts education. Yeah, I mean, there's exceptions, but as a, as a mean, uh, a median level, yeah. that aspiration, the idea of a liberal arts education, more and more, you know, that whole idea is saying— Am I going to get a better job? Am yeah. I going to make more money? Do, you know, where can I work with a liberal arts education? Can I be, write books? Right. No, there's no money in that. Can I get into journalism? No, there's no money. No journalism. <laughs> so how do you, like, when you, is, <laughs> I mean, do you feel, I, I don't want to jump right in, into into fascism, but I, I so when you were, when you were brought up, I mean, the college was, was seemingly, uh, liberal, but your your childhood was not. Well, it just depends. Yeah, what you call it. Yeah, uh, I mean, we was it did, restrictive? Yeah, well, restrictive. I mean, we didn't watch movies, but then I didn't know anybody who watched movies because you were insulated. Uh, no, but it's because in 1928, our synod passed what they called the um, uh, decree against worldly amusements, and that was right at the height of the Jazz Age. And, the Senate within the religion. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was a synodical decree, and therefore there were no movies shown. Mm. And I really didn't miss them. Nobody saw them. Uh, Nobody talked about them. There was no social media. You weren't <laughs> exposed to uh, other wild people who had seen movies. And, uh, and then that all started turning over in the 60s. And so my first exposure to cinema was really the European cinema of the 60s. Right. Which was a wonderful place to walk into the world of film. Well, it's grown-up movies. Yeah. Right? So I mean, there was so, no— you know, Bergman, Godard— Rene Truffaut, yeah. uh, Antonioni, you know, that was my first experience. And when you went to college? Uh, in, in college, yeah. 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 But when you were when you were younger, being that you never saw movies, they, how did you entertain yourself? Well, there was TV. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, and then, you know, they, they had bicycles. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they had bat, bat, bats and balls. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and then you would stay outdoors until the uh, streetlights went on. Yeah. <laughs> and then you hear your mom call you. Yeah. And you have to go inside. Yeah. So you had thought about pursuing religion? Well, that, that was 
you know, and just in order to graduate, yeah. you know, I had to take a minor in, in theology. Okay. So, and then the, 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 at a certain point, you decide to move, stay yeah. in theological school or go elsewhere. Sure. And uh, so I, it was 1968. Yeah. And uh, I had become uh, obsessed with films, and I went to UCLA Film School. So you left. Yeah. And how how'd your uh, family feel about that? Uh, or you didn't give a shit. I think they were. I had been. I'd been making a lot of trouble. I, I, I'd gotten the newspaper shut down already. How so? Uh, How'd you do that? We called for the board to resign, and yeah. then we published some things. And you know, I mean, it was just what John Lewis called good trouble. Yeah. Uh, just just being trouble. Yeah. Uh, and so it wasn't a, a big surprise. Yeah, that you left. Yeah. And now, like, so Calvinism, that the idea is pre predetermination, right? That God knows who's going to heaven no matter what. Uh, yeah, that, the, that's the naughty center of Calvinism because yeah. um, your, your works have no value. My best works are filthy in the sight of the Lord. You cannot earn salvation. And uh, if God is omniscient, he knows all the names of who are saved. Uh, so where does free will come in? Right. And that's always the thing. But, of course, you do have free will. Right. But you don't have free will. <laughs> but but, but they're, depending on who you are and what your moral or, or personal constitution is, the, the, I would assume that if you were enlightened in a progressive way, it's hard not to feel doomed. Well, you know, you, 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 oh, there's also the elect. Uh -huh. The elect are those that God has chosen from the beginning of time. Yeah. And you presumably will be in the elect. Yeah. If, uh, if you choose to be. Which is, what is, what, what does that choice entail? It includes good works, but it primarily entails belief. Oh, okay. Faith. Yeah. So, but isn't this where we get the the that the idea that you know if if the Protestant work ethic doesn't that come directly out of, out of absolutely Cal out Calvinism? So if you work hard, yes, you'll get in. Yes. So yeah. doesn't that then create this idea that capitalism is God? Uh, well, no, you just jumped over. I'm sorry. Yeah. To uh, I can't think of his name. Um, but there is a, a German philosopher who basically just said that right yeah, there. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, does that, in, do you find, because it seems like in, in a lot of the films that, that that is sort of in the background somehow. Yes, it, it is. Uh, the sense of uh, asceticism. You know, yeah. I mean, so, you know, the difference between the Abrahamic religions. Yes. Uh, Islam, yeah. Judaism, yeah. Christianity—they're all based in kinds of blood, yeah. but different levels of it. Yeah. And Catholicism is quite flamboyant, yeah. very fancy uniforms and yeah. lots of bloody paintings. Sure. And uh, wizards, uh, a lot of wizards. Yeah. You know. And <laughs> Protestantism is uh, the opposite, very, very austere. Yeah. And you know the difference between a crucifix and a cross? 
Uh, one has Christ on it. Yeah, crucifix has a guy on yeah. it. Yeah, we, we ours don't have a guy. We don't have a guy yeah, on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's a purely a symbol, a symbol, you know. And where do you think that comes from? Is that a, is that like a class decision? I mean, was I, it seems when I visited the, the the cathedrals in Rome, I was sort of like these were built to scare the shit out of poor yeah. people. Yeah, <laughs> and and they were, uh, and it's also. It, they were given an enormous license yeah. because they were very, very rich. It was, it was the Holy Roman Empire. Yes. And there was an enormous amount of decadence, an enormous amount of license, and they fought a hundred-year war uh, in Europe yeah. uh, to get you know, away from the power of the Catholic Church. Yeah. It seems like, because like when I was thinking about this trajectory or whatever the hell I'm talking about here, that you know this new trilogy— uh, you know, uh, of the three movies, first performed and uh, the the card uh, counter and Master Gardener, that these are all you know meditations on so, in some ways on the repercussions of capitalism, in, in terms of global warming, in terms of war crimes, and in terms of of, of racial tension. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you you there are several component parts. Yeah. You, uh, you get a an interesting occupational metaphor, and that started with taxi driver. So there was something that people think they know, but they don't really know. You think you know what a taxi driver is. He's kind of like your brother-in-law. Yeah, he's right. kind of cracks jokes. He has character. A, he's a character. Yeah. Then I, I I look at him and I say, no, this is the black heart of Dostoevsky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what a taxi driver is. He's <laughs> this kid in a yellow coffin locked in, getting angrier and angrier. Raskolnikov? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, notes from the underground. Oh, yeah. notes from the underground, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so then, once you see the the duality of a metaphor, then you start to move and put it in a social, larger social context. So the duality of the taxi driver metaphor, you get male violence, yeah, and incelness. You know, basically. The, yeah, he was the, uh, the Travis was the first movie incel. Yeah, a little old for the incel. <laughs> he was a little older than most incels, I think. He was in his twenties. Okay, all right, yeah, that's, that's good. good. Yeah, and then so then, you know, well, so it's maybe a card player. No, you you don't uh, associate World Series of Poker with torture. Yeah, but then you put them together, and you see you have Abu Ghraib. Yeah, and a card player. Yeah, and, and you have a little room to move in there. Yeah, and uh, with uh, Gardner, it's um, a former white supremacist who's a gardener, and uh, racism. Right, and and then, and it allows you to do these little. Um, you know, they're they're kind of character studies. They're in a way. Like short stories, I mean, Master Gardener is is maybe almost like a fable in a way because uh, it, it it isn't so much this is what is happening, but what if this could happen? Well, yeah, and, but also like there's you know just filmically you invert the plantation metaphor, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you kind of turn that on its head. Yeah, I, I, I do the reverse Mandingo scene. <laughs> yeah, and and then you, you know you wonder about this guy, but you know in all these things, you know in first reformed as well that the, you know the choice you know that he shoulders with with you know taking the action or not taking the action, you know yeah. where his heart is and where the future of the world is, and then choosing mm -hmm. to ultimately torture himself. Yeah, well, I mean, you know what he does is. 
he's looking, you know, in a way, I mean, the, the great temptation of Christianity yeah. is this notion that I can earn salvation. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus Christ doesn't teach that. But it's such a temptation that if I suffer enough, yeah. if I starve myself, if I live in a monastery, if I'm celibate, yeah. if I hit myself on the back with a whip, somehow I will earn a place in heaven. Right. Whereas Jesus is not saying that at all. Yeah. You know, but that's the, the temptation yep. to earn it. Where did that come from, though? Who decided that? I think that's human. I just think the idea of— If I'd be good. I think the idea of accepting grace yeah. is not is, is a hard one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, you, you feel that, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to earn this. I, yeah. I did it. Yeah. I did it. Yeah. The, the, the Christian idea that uh, love your neighbor sure. and— uh, do some you know very the basic things of kindness. Sure, uh, it doesn't really sit well with our evolutionary drive <laughs> path. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so there's an inherent contradiction there. And uh, so then I, I I use those elements. Uh, so I did ended up doing three of these films in a row. It wasn't I've. Post facto called it a trilogy, but it, it, it wasn't didn't set out to be. Yeah. In the same way, there's a three Bergman films that they now call a trilogy. Sure. But he didn't make them as a trilogy. Yeah. And and I, I did these three in a row, and uh, now I'm doing something quite different. And a lot of it had to do, of course, with uh, the new technology, which allowed me to make films that I couldn't make before. Uh, because of it, it's easier and cheaper. Yeah. But like, like in these protagonists, you, you know, like, and even in you know Travis Bickle and you know in in and Raging Bull too, in Jake Lamada, is that you have this sense of an attempt through discipline and ritual to have some control. Yeah, and 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 that that's what's really keeping them connected to whatever their reality is or to whatever their purpose is, and that's sort of Calvinistic, isn't it? Yes, but it goes against the notion that, um, you know, the contradiction, which yeah. is you have to have that. Yeah. On the other hand, you have to not have that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so Calvin, who was a great intellectual, he had this notion that you could create this huge fabric of logic with one lighty, tiny little pinhole of faith. Yeah. If you if you believe that one little thing, everything else was logical. Right. Well, the problem with a pinhole of faith is about the same size as a barn door. Yeah. The moment you let faith into the argument, it's not a, not a logical argument anymore. Right. right. Yeah. Because it, you have to suspend your yeah. disbelief. Yeah. Anything, any tiny little bit of faith that's in the logic breaks the fat, tears the fabric. So where do these things start? Like, I mean, let's go back a little bit in the, in the sense that, so you come out here in 68, and uh, and, and it, it, the goal is to make movies? No, I was, I was a protege of Pauline Kael's. So you're a critic, when uh, critics were yeah. real critics. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and a very elitist one, you know, um, uh, well, well I, I was working for the L.A. Free Press, which yeah. had uh, 150,000 circulation. Yeah. Uh, writing every week, and uh, Pauline had helped me get that job. But that was the 
the generation when 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 we stopped going to the movies and we started to go into a movie. Right. Then we needed critics. Right. Because how do you know which movie you're going to see? And also, there was a world of uh, uh, aesthetes and uh, film intellectuals. I, I imagine that most of the generation you're talking about knew Cahiers de Cinema, read all of the. Yeah, but I mean, before that, people would just go to the movies. Let's, right. Let's see a movie. Sure. Now it was, let's see The Godfather. Let's right. see Coming Home. Yeah. Well, how do you know which one to see? Well, you have to read about it. Therefore, you have a huge critical establishment that just burst into bloom in the uh, late 50s and into the 60s. But it was real criticism, it was contextualizing. It was, yeah. you know, aligning it with culture. It yeah. was uh, assessing filmic uh, yeah. device. And and, and and therefore, it was very elitist. I mean, I was sort of back then, you know, I was of that group where you said, you know, we'll tell you when you make a good movie. Okay. Right. Bogdanovich was a critic too, right? <laughs> uh, he was not really a working critic. He was more of a profiler and an interviewer. So that's different. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, But he was a peer? He was a few years older. Oh, he was? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Who uh, were your peers, your immediate peers at the time? David Denby, Ebert. Yeah. Uh, Ebert uh, was good, huh? Yeah, and here, yeah, Dick Whitehead here, and uh, David Kerr, and uh, other yeah. places. Uh, and uh, and I was also editing a film magazine, so they were getting people to write for me, and that's how I got met Manny Farber. And when I first met Scorsese, we went down to San Diego to see Manny, you know. Uh-huh. And what were the foundational movies for you that defined your critical thinking around film? Uh, well, the when I was in college, you know, and people weren't seeing movies, and then the, but they started seeing movies underground, yeah, on sixteen millimeter projected in people's houses and stuff, you know, because the system was cracking, and you no longer could really keep kids from seeing movies because there are too many good movies out there. Oh, this is, oh, in... Uh, in the 60s. Here or where you grew in up? Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, so right. And so there was... Bootleg movies were being shown in homes. Yeah. Okay. But, so then the, um, you know, the Janus 16 millimeter prints. Yeah. yeah. And then there was a, a, a guy who had a softcore porn theater did a lot of like Russ Meyer, Big Ten. Sure, sure, sure. Faster and, Pussycat. Yeah, and yeah. he wasn't making it any money. Right. And he had a place near the college, and so he decided to show a month of Ingmar Berber. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and everybody went over there, and um, and people were coming back and saying, you know, through a glass darkly, you know, this guy is talking about the same thing we're talking about in the seminary, and he's a filmmaker, and he's mm. from Sweden. Yeah. Um, what's the what's the problem? Yeah, and and so that that just broke it down like right crazy. Yeah, so that through a glass darkly would be an important film. Yeah, and then I was a film critic here, and I had a um, a, a pivotal moment in March of nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, uh, I went to the uh, the Lemley Theater on Los Feliz. Yeah. And uh, it was a critical morning screening of Pickpocket by Robert Bresson. Yeah. And two things, it's a small, short movie, 75 minutes. Yeah. Two things happened in that movie that changed my life, that 75 minutes. Yeah. First is I had assumed that there was no connection between uh, my sacred upbringing and my profane present. Yeah. 
And I realized there was. But it was not a connection of content. It was a connection of style. And that people who chose to represent the holy all around the world, yeah. whether in gardens, cathedrals, music, sure. cinema, yeah. you did it through style, not yeah. through content. Right. Like, uh, what's an example of that? Uh, transcendental style. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how you do it? The Zen Garden is a context of that. A cathedral is a context. Well, you used that like in Mishima, right? There was the, yeah. the there was the sets of the uh, of the. But, but it's a format. It's a it's a format. It's like meditation. Yeah. It's a uh, or like. Okay, so it's a me it's a metaphor. Yeah. Okay. It's a method. It's yeah. A, right. A, a way of acting and living that. Uh, you see emulated all around the world different religions. Okay, so you can, you're saying that the, then the, the, the medium becomes film. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and so that, that's why I wrote a book about that. Yeah. So that, that, I wrote a book two years after I saw the film. And then the other thing uh, that occurred to me, I was living in a house in a Fairfax district with four kids who were all filmmakers. Yeah. And they were all full of that 60s kind of arrogance, and they were doing a biker movie yeah. for Corman. At, at, it was before or after Easy Rider? At, uh, right around that time. Yeah. They were doing a film called Naked Angels. It was just it was before. Yeah. And uh, and they all looked down on me. As I was in film uh, critical studies. Yeah. And they were making a film. Right. And I looked down on them because they were trash. Yeah. <laughs> And I didn't get Hollywood, and I didn't want to be a part of Hollywood. Uh, I didn't think there was any place for me here. Yeah. And, that I, you know, Pauline was going to get me a job as a critic, and that's yeah. what, what was, I was where I was headed. Yeah. And then I saw this film, and uh, there's this kid in it, and he writes in a journal, and then he yeah. goes out and steals some stuff, and he writes some more, and then the cops <laughs> talk to him. Yeah. And he writes some more, and then his business his neighbor. And I thought to myself— I could make a movie like that. <laughs> yeah. And three years later, I wrote that movie. It was called Taxi Driver. Directly from the pickpocket. It was, Inspired. It's, it's the same movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in, what what was it essentially that, you know, if you were drawing a line at Hollywood movies? So I, I'm assuming that most Hollywood movies, and, you know, and that, that would be, you know, the history of film in a certain way, American film. You had, you, you had, decided was mostly garbage. Yeah. So so this movie captured the 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 very personal story of a, a guy who lives in these two worlds. Yeah, and it was uh the the a smaller canvas thing. Yeah. Uh like the European cinema. Right. Uh wasn't that many of my peers and coibles uh, uh Rightly or wrongly, uh, they would say rightly, uh, became addicted to the big toys. By the big toys, I mean the, the large budgets, the machinery, the cranes, the extras, the sets. So that's De Palma, Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola. And I never really was attracted to that. I liked the idea of you know, the more intimate chamber kinds of films. Well, all those guys studied those movies, but they the, you know, ultimately fell back on Hollywood. Well, they they also saw those movies when they were children, right? And I never saw a movie when I was a child, right? I never saw uh, a big Hollywood. Like you didn't grow up with it, a musical, yeah, yeah. Or, a, or or anything, yeah. You know, not even a biblical epic. 
And so you came into film as an adult and what yeah. resonated with you were your sort of rites of passage as an adult in dealing with faith. You know, you saw movies at that time that spoke to that that were not American movies. No. No, and 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 then they were changing the whole world of movies, right? Uh, in that ten years, in the late sixties, uh, yes, and uh, you know, starting with fifty eight through sixty eight. But how do you contextualize, you know, like uh, uh, you know, um, the Sidney Poitier, uh, Rod Steiger in the Heat of the Night? Yeah, that was just a part of what Hollywood was just waking up, right, from its slumber and starting to do thematic films that had real punch to them. Because of your contemporaries? No, no, that was just... A little a, before? Th that was the theater generation. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. That was Mike Nichols and those guys? Yeah, and, and Pollock and yeah. uh, Frankenheimer and all those guys yeah, that come yeah. from the theater. Right. My generation came from film school. Right. And that's another uh, another generation. So well, they, well, that's interesting. So the, the, the first part of the transition out of the old studio system as those older guys no longer knew how to market, which was essentially what movies were all about, yep. was selling them. Uh, that kind of broke down, and the first ones in were the theater guys, the smart guys, but theater guys. And they, because they moved from theater to TV theater, mm. Playhouse 90, American Film Theater. Yeah. You know, and, and, and because there was an early, in the early days of TV, there was this whole thing which only survives today in the broadcast of the opera or the ballet, yeah. where you would have cultural programs. Right. And so you would have a, you know, Lumet do. Long days turning into night on on a, on television. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, well, isn't that something? Like because like even when I was a kid, I'm 59. That you know those guys were making talk the talk show circuits. I mean, you would see Norman Mailer yeah. on the talk shows, and there's a negation yeah. of intellectual cultural content. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not all gone. Otherwise, we wouldn't be even having this conversation. Well, that's right. Our, av yeah. our avatars would be talking about us talking about this conversation. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, there's there's a small <laughs> there's a small intellectual bubble, Paul, and we're in the bubble. I don't know if it it goes to the other bubbles, but I mean, we've all had to become content with our bubble. Yeah. That like, do you feel that that in the in the broader conversation? I think that when you were starting out, there was the idea that. Despite the fact that you were going against what what Hollywood was, that there was a way to deliver the message to a broader audience. Yeah, you could make room for yourself in the same way that you could change Vietnam. Right. You know, uh, the government was not monolithic. You, they could be moved. Yeah. And you know, the, since then, the government has figured out how not to be moved. Yeah. Uh, how to, by corporate occupation. Yeah. How to do something under the under the cover of doing something else. And, oh, I see what you're saying. But also, they're bought and owned. I guess they always kind of were. But yeah, I mean, there's, well, now, like, the, 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 the notion of there being a truth has taken a big hit. So, you know, it, it all gets pretty slippery when you get a bunch of people yeah. making false equivalencies and, <laughs> and conspiracy theories, right? Yeah. But, I mean, just going back to yeah. this period in the 60s okay. of this birth of European cinema, of intellectual cinema and personal cinema, you know, there's a saying that, you always remain in love with the music that you first heard when you fell in love. 
Yeah. And I think the same thing is true about the movies. Yeah. You always become, you always remain in love with the movies that you first saw when you fell in love with movies. Yeah. So if you're Martin Scorsese or Steve Spielberg, you never forget those movies that you first fell in love with. Yeah. And Marty remembers every single one of them. From the, you know, he seems <laughs> to remember every movie ever. Yeah. But he, you know, he remembers being eight years old, you know, and six years old going and at the matinee. Yeah. And so that's where his love was born, and yeah. he carries that love with him to this day. My love was born, you know, in the Nouvelle Vague. So how did you convince, or how did that uh, partnership come about? When you, because Martin, you know, Martin, you know, certainly went his own way. I mean, he wasn't making big Hollywood movies. Uh, well, he, he was, uh, he was on his way there, and he, and he, you know, he just finished a $200 million film. Uh, Which one? Flower Moon. Oh yeah, well that well now. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, I mean, he made Alice doesn't live here anymore. Yeah. And that was a small who, movie. Who was not knocking in that? Yeah, uh, and Mean Streets yeah. was, was the one that sort of. Uh, I, but, but I had written this script. Uh, I wrote it on spec. Yeah, I uh, was one of the first people who wrote on spec. I'm probably going to be one of the last. Yeah, I just wrote it as self therapy and your then, alter ego. I was afraid of becoming this kid. Yeah, I felt if I could write about him, I had to break through the bounds of nonfiction. I, nonfiction wouldn't take me to the therapeutic place I needed to go to get that kid out of my head. Right, and so I had to write about him and become him in 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 absentia. on the paper. Yeah. So, what elements of Travis Bickle were you struggling with? Anger, yeah. loneliness. Yeah. Uh, in cellness, which is, how do you describe that? Just a, a rage at at, at 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 wanting to be uh, known. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at Taxi Driver, the girl who he wants he cannot have. The girl who he can have, he does not want. Now, who set up those rules? He did. Yeah. He's the one who put himself in that box. It's not that he's lonely. It's that he's contriving a method to remain lonely in order to get angrier. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. In, in that, but that's not a conscious. No. no right. No. And that, okay, so that's the uh, fundamental uh, issue. Uh, you know, so, so, so many of these guys, you see them, you know, they're just furious that women don't take them out. And you realize they're making the problem themselves. Yeah. There are a lot of women out there who would date those guys if they only didn't see themselves as undateable. Yeah, but also there's other, there, I, I would say 50% of them have other unresolved sexual issues that they can't live with. Well, yeah, or, or, or that they cannot process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Okay, so, so you had uh, to get that out of you. Yeah. And so then uh, I, I, was, I was back being a film critic, and I, was, I had reviewed Sisters, and I was playing— Altman's movie? No, De Palma. Uh, oh, De Palma, right, right, right. And, uh, and I was playing chess with Brian because he played chess. And, yeah. And then I said— uh, to him one day, you know, I wrote a script because I never, I just wrote this script. Yeah. I didn't do anything with it. Yeah. Uh, I was still wanted to be a critic. I said, you know, I wrote a script. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Please, please, please yeah, don't yeah. tell me. Yeah. Finally, at the end of the game, he said, okay, I'll read your script. Yeah. And he read it and he gave it to Marty. And he said, I don't think this is for me, but I think you might like this. And that's how it started. 
That's interesting because De Palma would would have done it much differently. Yeah, he couldn't have done it. Yeah, yeah. And and in truth, um, uh, Marty at that time wanted Harvey Keitel because he knew Harvey. Yeah, he didn't know Bob very well. Right. And you know, I wouldn't saw Mean Streets, and I said, Marty, it's got to be Bob. <laughs> yeah. And and in truth, uh, we didn't talk about that character that much. Scorsese and De Niro and myself, there weren't any long conversations about that movie. We understood this cat. We yeah. knew exactly who he was. Yeah. And we knew how he had come out of German, I mean, uh, uh, European existential fiction. Yeah. And uh, we knew why he did, you know, no, no one said to another, well, why would he take that beautiful girl into Times Square porn theater? Yeah. What else is he going to do? Yeah, what else is he going to do? And that's what he <laughs> wants to do. He yeah. wants to destroy himself. Yeah, but in that moment, he, you know, he's he's insulated himself into what he thinks is proper, <laughs> and, and he doesn't know better in a way, right? Yeah, well, but that's what he's trying to convince you. But yeah. the truth is... Probably the opposite. Oh, he wanted to start shit. Well, no, he wanted to show how evil he was. Oh, interesting. It's you know, though. It, it, I just was thinking about Marty's cameo in that movie, and he's one of the only fully realized male <laughs> moments in that movie, right? A decisive <laughs> moment. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> you, you see that there? Yeah. And that was supposed to be George Memley, and. Uh, and uh, George had had an accident. He banged his head. He, George was a big mook guy from yeah. Main Streets. Yeah. And he subsequently died. In, and um, and uh, Marty said, uh, I said, well, who are you going to replace George with? Yeah. He said, I thought I would do it. I said, please, Marty, please, yeah. don't do it. I love that scene. I think it's really well done. Yeah. And if you do it, you'll see yourself on screen, and you'll hate it, and you'll cut it out. Yeah. And I was wrong. It was just the opposite. He saw it on the screen. He loved it. He made it even longer. <laughs> he he kind of nailed it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. So what gave you the confidence to, because I, I, I've watched several of your movies, just I had no idea I was going to talk to you. But over the last year, I rewatched Blue Collar. I rewatched Hardcore. I rewatched uh, I, I rewatched Taxi Driver. I rewatched, um, I saw Light Sleeper for the first time. No. So. You know, what gave you the, the confidence to, to do Blue Collar, to, to write it and direct it? You wrote that with your brother, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a scheme. You know, a scheme. How, how, how to finance it. Yeah. So, I, Lucy Soroy, I, I had this idea, uh, uh, the metaphor of union workers who rob their own union. Right. But a perfect great metaphor for racism. Yeah. How can we destroy each other? As Pierpont Morgan said once, I could hire half my workers to kill the other half. Yeah. Well, that's what's <laughs> happening in the country. Yeah. <laughs> and and so uh, I knew Lucy Saroyan, and she was dating prior, so I was able to get to Richard, and yeah. I knew Harvey. And, and so I started putting it together. Yeah. And then uh, my former agent was now working for Norman Lear. Yeah. And Lear had a deal with Universal, and Lear was the king of uh, black populist comedy, Mo yeah. moving on up, all yeah, the yeah, family, yeah. all yeah, of that. Yeah. And so we got Norman to take it into Universal, and they had uh, just done Which Way is Up with Richard. Sure. And so all the, the, the pieces aligned. Yeah. And uh, I was able—and and I— Still doing that today. I mean, quite literally, 
today. I'm doing another film with gear in uh, July, and I'm putting it together, write a script on spec, find Richard, yeah, find another piece. I got a million and a half bucks. Well, from here, I'm now I'm t- t- working with the the dog food heiress, trying yeah. to get some money out of her. Who who's the dog food heiress? I I don't know uh, because uh, <laughs> they won't tell me her name because. <laughs> They're afraid I'll, I'll call her the dog food heiress. Oh, okay. But uh, how, what was your uh, experience with Richard? Was it good? Prior or yeah, gear? With uh, Prior. Well, it was very bad. Bad? Yeah, well, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was uh, an angry black comic. Yeah. And he suffered from what I call the big and black syndrome. Yeah. Which is he wanted to be the biggest entertainer in the world. Yeah. And he wanted to be the blackest. Yeah. So that in order to be the biggest, he would be the nicest guy. He could make anybody laugh. Yeah. People would just gather around yeah. him. He, yeah. And then as soon as he saw all these white people gathering around him, he realized he wasn't black enough. Yeah. And the next day, boom. Yeah. The pendulum swang. Yeah. And he was the blackest motherfucker on, in town. Yeah. And everybody said, oh, I don't want anything to do with Richard. Yeah. And then, of course, the pendulum swung again. Yeah. And he was the nicest guy again. Well, just watching that, and comics are, uh, for the most part, unhappier than any other form of entertainer. Uh-huh. Just watching that, it was exhausting to see him. And, uh, and, and he would often... You know, displace it. Yeah, and so it would come out racially, which would get ugly. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, you know, what do you do? At one point, he said to me, "The first white man I ever saw came to my mama's house to fuck her, and you're just like him." Huh. And, you know, what, what do you say? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's very interesting, Richard. Yeah, I hadn't quite thought of it that way. <laughs> but he did deliver a good performance. Oh for yes, you. yes, yes, yes. But it was just it was exhausting. Sure. And was it exhausting for everyone? I mean, did yeah. Harvey get along with him? Yeah. That? No, exhausting for everyone. Oh. Harvey Quaid at one point. Yaff uh, uh, had from about the third or fourth day on, there was an altercation on set every day, if not verbal, sometimes physical. Do you think that added to the film? In retrospect, I think so. I mean, it. it, it um, I, I think it probably did. And when, when when you look back at your your films, I'd you, never want to do it. Again. <laughs> it's not worth the price worth worth paying again. But, but which ones do you sort of like look back at and think like I nailed it? Uh, you have different favorite children. Yeah. Uh, Mishima, just because it's the damnedest thing. Uh, there's no film like it. Yeah, there is no film like it. It's yeah. wild, man. And and I think Affliction is probably a perfect adaption of that, of a book. Yeah. Just get, really, I nailed that book. Uh, First Reformed, I like because it's my, I finally got to make a spiritual film, you know? That's the first one you consider spiritual? That I set out that to you be. Di- but you, that you directed. Yeah, that, that I set out to be. Okay. That. You know? So you don't see, because you, you wrote The Last Temptation, didn't you? Yeah, but I already directed it. Right. But uh, I set out with First Reformed to do a film of of religious aesthetics. Yeah. Aesthetics and aesthetics. Aesthetics and aesthetics. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, you know, those are some of my... And then I, I like a film I did called Cover of Strangers just because it's so perverse. Yeah. Harold Pinter-esque. How do you think hardcore holds up? Um... I, I I'm not a big the big fan of it. I, I made some compromises, uh, one in casting and one in the end. That like I, what? Tell, uh, you can talk about it now. Yeah, um, I, I thought uh, Susan Hubley was too cute, 
And that was uh, Columbia, Dan Melnick had to, uh, I wanted to use the girl from Mommy Dearest. Yeah. And um, the daughter? Yeah. Yeah. And then in the ending, I had my ending was the ending of Chinatown, which is this guy goes through this whole underworld of pornography. Yeah. And it turns out his daughter was killed in a car accident unrelated to pornography. That was your ending. Yeah. And he has to go home with all the shit in his head. And uh, that's the Schrader character. Yeah, <laughs> and, and 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 Columbia said no, no, no. He has to find his daughter. That's funny because that is the most inauthentic moment, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you had to you had to appease them. Yeah, I had to do that. And uh, but but I I think the reason the film is getting a bounce in the last year or two. Yeah. Is a nostalgia for pornography. Old style. Old style, or you go yeah. down Santa Monica Boulevard and sure. the peep shows, and if you go in to get a buyer magazine, you have to look both ways to make sure a car isn't passing with, with, with your mother's friend in it. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, now uh, every, every sub-teen is, you know, Three keystrokes away. Yeah. Well, yeah. One keystroke <laughs> away. It's uh, it's almost like a, a virus. Yeah. But uh, but how do you like like I watch Raging Bull at least once a year. What was your experience on that movie? Well, I, I was um, directing during that, so I wasn't on the set. Right. And uh, but how did you feel about the script? Uh, well, I mean, I didn't write the first version. Okay. Uh, Mark Martin, and they couldn't get it financed. Okay. And De Niro came on the set of Hardcore, and I said, well, what does he want? Yeah. Because he, didn't, he doesn't show up unless he wants something. Right. And he said, we can't get the film financed. Marty thinks maybe if you rewrite it. Well, what had happened was, is Jake LaMotta had hated his brother so much that he wrote his own autobiography and cut his brother out of it. Uh, yeah, and it became The Friend. Well, yeah, well, he no, no, he, he, he in Raging Bull, Jake's book. Yes, right. There is no Joey. There's no Joey, but he had that close friend. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I started researching. I said, wait a second, the Fighting Lamada Brothers. Yeah, you know, uh, one takes the beating, the other takes the money, and the girls. Yeah, I said that. You know that I know that relationship. That's called sibling rivalry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then all of a sudden it became a sibling movie to me, and not a boxing movie. Yeah. And because uh, and I, I wasn't interested in doing a boxing movie. Well, what's interesting about it is after I watched a bunch of those boxing movies on Criterion is that, like, uh, you know, it is a boxing movie, structurally. Yeah. But but what I guess you mined out of, you know, uh, LaMotta's personal uh, struggle, his own self-flagellation was, you know, sort of a uniquely uh, Schrader character in a way. Yeah, well, me, uh, me and my brother, I had an older brother. He's, he's dead. But he was my older brother. Yeah. And he showed me the path, and then I became his older brother. And, and then I began, I superseded him, and then I began supporting him. Yeah. Well, that's a very fraught kind of dynamic, and a lot of siblings have that, you yeah. know, uh, where... Uh, you know, brothers switch roles. Yeah, he was he he was also a writer. He wrote yeah. with you. He wrote a couple of uh, yeah. Mishima, right? Yeah, and uh, and then he went, he wanted to be a director and he failed at that. And then yeah, and then uh, and I 
tell you the truth, I was a careerist, and if I had to elbow him a little bit to promote myself, I wasn't above that. And how do you I'm feel? That. How do you feel about that now? I, I, I feel I was a bad guy. Yeah. How much of that do you have in you? <laughs> How much do you carry? Because I, you know, I wonder about these characters, like you know, especially the characters you create. You know, what what are they? You know, ultimately, because you know, a lot of them, you know, the movie ends in a way that you you rarely get the feeling like these guys are going to be okay. Yeah. Like, well, they, they they got it out of their system. Yeah. Until the next go around. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, what about conscience? Well, I mean the. Um, that's the difference between, let's say, Taxi Driver and Master Gardner. Yeah. Taxi Driver is really secular. It's all going to start up again. The music starts again. He's back in the cab again. And it's a loop. All of a sudden, oh, here we are at the end. Nope, right. Here we are at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and whereas Master Gardner is more of a fable saying, what if a person could in fact change? What if it were possible for a person to change? Uh, so it's a different kind of a way to end it. And uh, in Venice, is I that, is that a happy ending for well, a straighter I, movie? There's a song at the ending. S.G. Goodman. Uh, yeah, I talked to her. Oh, she yeah. She told I, me that you guys were email buddies. And yeah, was, yeah, yeah. She's great. Yeah, and uh, well, she did this song. Um, Space and time, I, I don't want to leave this world until I say I love you, okay? Yeah. And we, Devante Hines and Mariba uh, got that, we uh, recorded it. Yeah. And that, that's what ends the film. Yeah. And I said in Venice, I said, I used to be a writer, a young writer, who believed I did not want to leave this world until I said fuck you. Yeah. Now I'm an old director who doesn't want to leave this world until he says I love you. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, and so you did it? You feel like you did it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? <laughs> well, let's talk about, real quick, let's talk about Autofocus, because I thought you did yeah. an amazing job with that movie. Yeah. Directing it. What, what, what attracted you to that property, to that script? Oh, just the uh, perversity of it. Uh, just the... Um, and we, and we changed the ending again uh, so that Bob doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. He didn't get it in his life. And after he's dead, he still doesn't get it. And um, Get what? Uh, what he is. Right. You know, what he's doing, you know. He said at the end of the narration after he's dead, he said, John wasn't really such a bad guy. <laughs> Right, right. After John has killed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and my, my favorite scene is when the two of them are... Sitting on the couch. Yeah, it's into their own porn. They're, yeah, and they're just on the opposite ends of the couch, tugging their dicks, <laughs> yeah. having a regular conversation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a, yeah, well, I, was, I, was, I was San Antonio, yeah. <laughs> and, and I also liked your focus on uh, technology. That you know that was such a, a pivotal part of what facilitated their compulsion, and you were like you spent real time with the new technology, like what we can do with yeah, this. Yeah, and of course you know you could tell that same story now with the new technology. Sure. 
and now I was, I was even obviously even even much scarier because uh, people don't even have to know they're being filmed anymore. In fact, we're all being filmed uh, unaware. Yeah, everywhere. And our Alexas are listening to our conversations, and deciding what com yeah. what commercials to put on our sure. Amazon Prime website. It's wild, right? Because they heard us talking about getting a new lawn chair. Isn't that crazy? What do you, how was what was your experience with George C. Scott? Um, George was an angry drunk. Yeah, at that time he had just directed two films that both failed the, during uh, hardcore or during. Didn't you use him in an, uh, in the Exorcist too? No, no, that was still in Starsguard. Oh, all right. Uh, uh, just during hardcore, and he was angry. Yeah, and um, but that wasn't the problem. Like prior was, in fact, his agent said to. Columbia, before we made the film, I want you to build in five days of uh, absenteeism for drunkenness. Okay. And that's exactly five days. <laughs> <laughs> and affliction to work with Coburn at that point in his life must yeah. have been kind of astounding, huh? Yeah, and uh, Nick. And, no, uh, he's, the, he's the best man. Yeah, and about, about getting it, I was doing a scene with... Uh, who the actress was, and Nick was telling her about her, his conspiracy oh, theory. Yeah. And she came back to me after the first couple takes, and she said, he doesn't get it, does he? He just doesn't understand. you know. And he was able to convey the fact of one of these people who you know, yeah. believes something, and you say, wait a second, you know, ground control of Major Tom, yeah. that's not <laughs> what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he I interviewed him years ago. It was very it was something. He's got one of those brains where it's like a I call it it's like a a, a bingo uh like a, a turning bingo yeah, ball. Yeah. And you just mention a name, he's like, Oh yeah, well Marlin was up on the hill and he uh, <laughs> and he just keep if you can follow him, you yeah. can get something, you know? So what influence did Peckinpah have on you? Uh, I was hanging around with Sam during the Wild Bunch. I ended up writing a big article about him. Yeah. And um, uh, the Wild Bunch is not only one of the great films of all time, yeah. but also it is the greatest end of a genre. You know, it just, just. You think that was it? Well, for a certain kind of Western. Yeah. Because basically what it just radiates is. Look, we know this is wrong. Yeah. We know this is evil. Yeah. We know we should be condemned for doing this. Yeah. But God help us, we love it so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> and those guys, you're never going to get that bunch of guys like that anymore, right? Were you on the set at all? Uh, no, no, no. It was I hard. heard it was crazy. Uh, yeah. Well, it was, you know, it, 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 that was right at the beginning of the, the Coke years. You know, and cocaine is what did Sam in. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember when I was a little kid, I grew up in New Mexico. They shot Convoy in Albuquerque, and I went down to the Hilton Hotel and met him. I met Ernest Borgnine. I met all the actors. And he was just this little bearded dude, all lit up. Yeah. But I was a kid. I didn't know. Yeah. Did it, it did everybody in, huh, the Coke? No, no. No, some of us came out the other end. You know, but one of Sam's problems was that he was regenerated by defeat, his psyche. 
so that if he, when he finally made a fool of himself yeah. in the bar room, got so drunk he fell on his face and everybody was standing pointing at him yeah. laughing. Yeah. That's when he got up. That's when he said, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Only he could do that with alcohol and with other uh, sins of the flesh. Yeah. But he couldn't get up from cocaine. Yeah. And you got through it? It took a while. Yeah, I'm. I had, first I left uh, Los Angeles. I, I left Los Angeles because of uh, because of it. Yeah. Then I left New York because of it, and kept running from it. <laughs> and I finally got to Tokyo, and which is where I started, you know, getting off of it. Was your brother there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, but um, and was it harder to get in Tokyo? It was not. Oh, well that, uh, that, that no! It was uh, 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 even even today. Uh, speed is the drug of choice, um, and uh, so you. And also, you just if you were in the entertainment business and you got caught with any kinds of drugs, yeah, the society closed ranks against you, and either a year or two years. You, it wasn't that you're. They told you to stop making music. Yeah. Nobody bought your music. Huh. And so one of the biggest singers in the world got busted for marijuana, and his sales ended. No shit. And one year later, at the Red and White show, New Year's Eve show, he got on, and he used to be the last performer. Yeah. Now he was the first performer. And he got on, and he apologized to the nation. For weed. For weed. And the next day, his music started selling again. So that was the the force, you know, when you yeah, have a, yeah. a, a unified society that yeah. acts as a single body. Is there a body of work that you call the cocaine movies for yourself? What would you no, say? No, not, not, not for myself. I no. did do a film while you saw Light Sleeper about yeah. uh, a drug, drug, drug And, and uh, American Jankalo, it was just very casual. You know, sure. Because at that time, it was part of... The culture. The culture. Yeah. yeah. And you, but you didn't write on Coke? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because you, I like to write night. I, I had, one of the problems of giving up Coke is trying to learn to write during the day. Yeah. Because at night, you go through, you go alcohol, caffeine, cocaine, nicotine. Yeah. And you just circle through them. Yeah. And as the night goes on, and then you start working at about 10 and... You finish yeah. at five or six, yeah. and you can get a lot done. <laughs> it's quiet. And also, you, you're writing like this yeah. because, you know, you've bribed all those little people who live in the keyboard. Yeah, yeah. And they're all coming out for drugs and booze. Yeah. And now they're all running around. They're talking like crazy, and yeah, you're, yeah. you're trying to keep up with them. Yeah. And then uh, as the years go on, you start realizing that when you ha instead of 15 pages in a night, there's like two yeah. Or one and a half. Yeah. And you're doing even more drugs. You're saying, wait a second. Am I pretending to write so I can do <laughs> drugs? <laughs> or am I doing drugs so I can write? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hard to know, right? Yeah. Well, you know what it, when, the, when the page count drops. Yeah. <laughs> so today, you know, we at the beginning of the conversation, there was a a hint at a suggestion about, you know, the right wing funding religious colleges and, you know, the right wing, you know, I, I'm assuming in, in your point of view is a problem and always has been a problem. Uh, and now, like, the, the, the country is sort of threatened. 
So where do you see, you know, art in relation to that? Because I know in Mishima, you, there was, you know, there, there was an idea of art living within fascism in a certain way. Yeah, and, and, but it was also part of a suicidal ethos. Yeah. Um, and maybe fascism would be more tolerable if it were, um, if it were suicidal. Uh, as it was in Mishima's case. Well, there's some suicidal in, in, in instinct with the end cells. Yeah. But most fascism is, uh, we're not going to kill ourselves, we're going to kill you. Kill yeah. you. And, you know, we now live, it's interesting, the, um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, nuclear holocaust, global warming, rampant viruses, and now AI. And AI is now threatening, pulling at the reins, threatening to become the lead horse. Yeah. And and what are your feelings about it? Well, as Al Franken said uh, a while, a couple of weeks ago, he said, you, you baby boomers will understand this. We got the last plane out of Saigon. <laughs> yeah, he said that? <laughs> yeah. And what about films, the film business? Uh, How do you feel about it? Well, I mean, you know, theatrical is uh, being mar marginalized. Yeah. Uh, Audiovisual entertainment is still very, very large. Yeah. Uh, it is now possible for virtually anybody to make a film. Is that good? And it is also impossible for virtually anybody to make a living. Yeah. So, you know, on one hand, just saying, uh, I could make a film for $50,000 with my phone. And the other hand, you're saying, I'm going to lose my $50,000, and I'm not going to get it paid a dime. Right. So it's a, it's a two-edged uh, sword. But don't you think also that with the democratization of films, and I hope this doesn't sound, uh, you know, slightly, uh, I don't know what, it's, it's not, well, I mean, there's a lot of garbage out there. And not everybody can do it. And at some point, you know, because of the monetization of films, and there was some sort of quality control on some level. Well, yeah, but there's still a lot of garbage. Yeah. Uh, oh, even before. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, fortunately for people who have taste uh, and intelligence, only about 10% of art is really any good. And so you you know if you're if you're any good you, you know there's a room for you yeah uh, you don't have to compete with that other yeah ninety percent you just have to wade through it yeah and and the, and the AI can do that ninety percent believe AI, me oh AI can yeah oh, AI, you want an episode of CSI yeah exactly Boom. yeah yeah easy AI, yeah. AI will write it faster better cheaper yeah uh, you know you want to. The new Paul Schrader film, AI is going to be scratching its head. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting what it came up with, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, well, they, they've asked it uh, to come up with Dylan lyrics, I, I have. Yeah. And, it, you know, it could come up with Dylan lyrics because there's a huge library of Dylan songs. Sure. But they're just not as quite as good as Bob's. No. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Great talking to you, Paul. All right, Mark. Thank you. There you go. That was fun, right? Master Gardener opens in theaters this Friday, May 19th. Hang out for a second, folks. 
Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. If you like that talk with Paul, you can check out my talk with Sigourney Weaver, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, this happened last year. We talked about Master Gardener as well as the rest of her career. So every role is just sort of like you're kind of like, okay, uh, you, you, yeah. you're, you're nervous or you're excited. I'm terrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, ugh, this is the one. <laughs> this is the one where the I'm going to fall flat on my face. Uh, but yeah. I also can't think of anything I love more than getting out there, than pushing off into the unknown and yeah. and letting the character out. Yeah. Um, Oh, that's and Norma was especially like, um, you know, she was Pandora's box when and, she opened her mouth, you know. Yeah, and I just, and that, you know, the the turn at the end, you know, and then again, just sort of like uh, the relationship shifting. It, it's it's kind of an astounding thing. I've never seen anything like it. Have I'm you? so glad. Have you ever? No, I mean, I haven't. I mean, <laughs> I, I think Paul's amazing. I feel so fortunate to have been able to work with him and that he... Um, you know, I once made the mistake of saying, well, why'd you think of me for Norma? I don't know what I expected you yeah, to say. Yeah. Uh, but I remember that Pauline Kale had been a great champion of mine early on, and he knew her quite well. Yeah. He said, no, I wanted Glenn Close, but she wasn't available. <laughs> so, <laughs> lesson is never ask those questions. That's episode 1369, and it's available for free in whatever podcast app you're using right now. To get all WTF episodes ad-free, subscribe to WTF Plus. Click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF Plus. Slide guitar. Dirty style.
Boomer lives. Monkey and LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere. Got a little weird at the end, man. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just improvising. I'm just improvising. <laughs> 